Welcome to the First NAS Podcast. This week, Pastor Paul continues his series on legacy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 with a sermon titled Godliness and Contentment. Let's listen in as he preaches through these words. I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Timothy. I'm in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And so I invite you to open there with me if you'd like to follow along. And then as we're, as we're getting there, as we're opening our Bibles, let me just remind you, every Thursday morning at 6 a.m., I pray via Zoom with anybody who'd like to join me. And so in order to get the Zoom link, you need to get our prayer text. So text prayer to that number, and you will receive a text at 5.55 a.m. on Thursday morning. Everybody loves that text message. And it will get you into, into our prayer time. So I invite you to that. And then let me just remind folks, I, the announcement was made last week and a couple weeks before, I think. Uh, I'm doing a membership class. And so if you're interested in membership in the Church of the Nazarene, that's happening during our Sunday school time at 9.15 in room 205. It's the furthest room from right here and still in the building upstairs. And so if you're interested, you don't have to be like committed to joining the church, but if you'd just like to know more information about the Church of the Nazarene and Lewiston First Naz, love to have you join us for that time. Did you know I love gadgets? I love gadgets. Doesn't everybody just love gadgets? Like I love, but I'm, a, I am, I'm very frugal in my gadgetry. So like I keep, I keep the gadgets I have for like, until they barely work anymore. I get really excited about announcements of new cell phones coming out. Like when, when a manufacturer I like, like they have the new flagship, their best model has, you know, it's even faster and better now. I get really excited because usually that means the price of the older models is going down. And that makes me really, really happy. And I don't do much with gadgets, honestly. Like I read books on a Kindle. Like, that's, that's about the excitement I get. I check sports scores on my phone, but sometimes I get to thinking that, like, man, if I had a better phone, I bet the Mariners would win more. And, you know, like, the, you, you get to thinking that it's, it's uh, you know, these things that we, that we have in our possession that, like, help all of life come together. Like, man, wouldn't it be really fun to play hearts on that phone? I could just really beat Bill then, finally. Uh, the uh, <laughs> thank you, Dina. You, another Hearts player. Uh, it's funny what we do. We tell ourselves these these stories about like how how things or like the next purchase or you know if you could just find the pair of pants that fits perfectly, like all of life is going to be better, right? Like everything's going to be better when we have the shoes that that uh, fit better or or that go with uh, whatever it is, and and we can get into that mindset and like all of life can be centered around, around finding the next, the next best, right? I read a book recently. I, I'm, I am a, a biking nerd. I read a book recently about a man who spent like several years building the perfect bicycle. And, uh, and you know what, when he got it all together, like, uh, all of life came together for him. His kids no longer complained about, about eating their vegetables. And uh, all of everything was perfect in life when he built this perfect bike. No, actually, that wasn't the case. It, when, when we get so fixated on, on these things, it turns out that, 
you know, a new phone, it doesn't make the Mariners win any more games. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't actually change, change things uh, for us as much as we hope they would. Well, this morning we come to the Word of God, and, and we so consistently we find God's wisdom for our daily lives here. We're looking at a passage today that really speaks to a lot of the temptations we have in, as Christians in the U.S. In, in 2023. This fall, I've been going through the book of 1 Timothy. It's this letter from the Apostle Paul to his closest disciple, Timothy. Timothy uh, was was overseeing the work of the church in the city of Jerusalem, or excuse me, in the work in the city of Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote this letter. And Paul is really intimately uh, aware of the things that are happening in the church in Ephesus. It's it's probably maybe one of the churches he spent the most time at during his ministry as a missionary and apostle of the church. And we believe that this letter comes from late in Paul's life. And so Paul is passing along wisdom for leading the church. He's, he's giving Timothy some of, of the bits and pieces he needs to be a good leader, to appoint good leaders, to help the church maintain during, during a time of tri- trial. But he's also thinking about his own legacy. And so Paul is writing this letter with, with his own, you know, he's getting late in life. He's starting to think about what people are going to say about him and how his disciple Timothy will carry the torch for him moving forward. And so Paul is aware that the church in Ephesus is going through some, some difficulty. He's aware that there is some false teaching that needs to be dealt with. And Timothy is really there to deal with the false teachers. He's there to, to try to hold accountable people who are teaching things contrary to the gospel of Jesus. And he's there also to appoint trustworthy and good leaders who can teach and lead the church well. And today I'm looking at a passage, this is the third time that Paul comes back directly to false teaching that was happening in Ephesus during Timothy's ministry there. And, and this, is, this, third, this third shot that Paul takes at the false teaching in Ephesus really focuses in on the teachers themselves. Paul doesn't really talk at all about the content of the teaching, he talks about the character of the teachers. And so we, we'll look uh, a little bit at what, what Paul has said about the teaching in Ephesus, and we're going to focus more on what Paul says about the importance of us living a godly life, regardless of, of what tempts us otherwise in, in this passage. So I'm in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'm, I'm starting midway through through verse 2, there's a paragraph break in, in, my, uh, in the New Living Translation in the middle of, of verse 2. And so I'm starting in the second half of, of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. It begins this way. Paul says, These things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant, lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. 
Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, he brought nothing, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all, kind of e all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So, we began, the, Paul begins the passage, teach these things, Timothy, teach these things. He's, he's hearkening back to what he's been saying to Timothy in chapter 5 and chapter 4. He's, he's hearkening back to how Paul has been talking about relationships and how we are to live in relationships. And, and this comes, you know, chapter 5 is this lengthy conversation about showing proper honor in relationships. Paul has talked about Timothy's responsibility in relationships with men and women, both men and women who are younger than himself and older than himself because Timothy finds himself kind of in the middle. And, and then he talks about the church's responsibility to honor widows who, who are a part of the community. Then he, he moved on and talked about the church's responsibility to honor leaders, honor the elders in the church. And then finally, at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul talked about the responsibility of Christian slaves to show honor to their masters. And showing proper honor in each of these relationships, Paul says, is, is a testimony to the world around us as believers. The world sees how we relate to one another in the church and how we relate to people outside of the church, and the world makes a judgment about Jesus based on how we relate. And so Paul says, by showing proper honor, we give a good word about Jesus to the world around us. By having good relationships, we, we tell the world God is good, and go, a good God is at work in our hearts and in our lives. In, in, uh, so Paul wants Timothy to, to teach honor within relationships. He expects Christians to obey what he has been, been teaching. This Chapter 5 especially, it's not just a word for Timothy. This isn't, this isn't just Paul writing directly to his disciple. It's Paul writing to the whole church. Paul's saying the whole church ought to live this way. And, and in verse 3, at the end of verse 3 that I read this morning, he, he gives a motivation. And if you've been following along through this series through 1 Timothy, the motivation's not going to surprise you. The motivation behind teaching these things, obeying these things, Paul says, these teachings promote a godly life. They promote a godly life. The Apostle Paul writes a lot in this letter in 1 Timothy about a godly life. And that's actually a little bit unique in Paul's letters. It, the, that phrase, a godly life, it actually, it only shows up in these later letters from Paul's life, in 1 and 2 Timothy and in Titus. It doesn't, it doesn't show up earlier in his letters. In his earlier letters, Paul, Paul uses the, the language of righteousness a lot more. And he does mention righteousness in, in First and Second Timothy, but he, he uses this idea of a godly life a lot more. It makes me wonder, it makes me wonder if just this later time in Paul's life, as, as he has thought about his teaching, as he's reflected about the way he has written about the Christian life, if he hasn't gotten to this point in life and realized, 
you know, I, I had one take on righteousness in my pre-Christian life. You know, Paul had this, this very strict Jewish upbringing, this very strict Jewish upbringing that focused him very, very intently on following the, the Old Testament law, of living according to the Old Testament law. And for him, righteousness, all of his years before he met Christ, all of his years before, before his conversion, righteousness was all about following rules. It was about following rules. It was about making sure that he knew the rules really well so that he could follow them perfectly. Now, that was the, the, whole, the whole plan of the Pharisees. We get everybody following the rules perfectly, and then God can come again. I think at this later point in, in Paul's life, he, he doesn't talk hardly at all about the Old Testament law in, in 1 Timothy. In fact, the only time he, he mentions it, he, kinda, he talks about it sort of disparagingly, about the false teachers. The false teachers want to be known as teachers of the Old Testament law. Paul kind of dismisses that idea. that Like, that's, that's not being known as a teacher. That, that's not really a great pursuit for, for those false teachers. And, and so Paul, Paul, throughout his letters, he, he's trying to give this, this balance of trying to understand what is righteousness if it's not just following the Old Testament law in every case. And Paul's letters can be a little head-spinning, right? Because you can read in Paul's letters these lists. There's lists in Paul's letters about all the, all the sins that we ought to avoid. And then right on the heels of that, you'll read all of the virtues that we ought to try to attain. And then, after these lists of sins and virtues, uh, elsewhere in Paul's letters, you might read something like in, in Romans 8, so now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because you belong to him. The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And so ever, even Paul, I think, for Christians since the very, very beginning, all of us have struggled with this idea of we are righteous when we come to know Jesus. Jesus makes us righteous. Our relationship with, with God through Jesus makes us right with God. We are right with God. But then we, we struggle because we want to know, yeah, okay, I'm right with God, but what are the rules that I can follow so that I really know? And we really want, like, the rules really help, though, right? Wouldn't it be nice if we just had, like, a perfect list, that if we just followed all of those, then we would know we're righteous, and, and Paul kind of spins our heads around, gives a list of virtues, vir list of sins, and then says, oh, by the way, you're right because you're related to God. And, and you know, I, I think what Paul is getting at when he changes his language to, to a godly life rather than using so much that word righteous, I think he's talking about living a, a life of virtue by allowing allowing God to move in our hearts to love, love God and love others. Jesus, Jesus didn't do away with law, right? In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I didn't come to, to do away with the law. I, I came to fulfill it. Um, but the specifics of the law can be kind of helpful sometimes. Sometimes it's nice to know where, where the boundaries are. But when Jesus talked about the law, 
you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus doesn't go to, the, to fulfilling the letter of the law. He goes to the heart behind fulfilling the law. Jesus seems more interested in his followers developing the type of character that, that fulfills the law because it has been transformed to be like Jesus. In the Church of the Nazarene, we have fought this. We have fought this battle over the course of our history. The Church of the Nazarene that many of us came, came of age in was much more rule-bound than we are. Uh, my mom likes to tell a story. My mom, my mom grew up very Nazarene. Uh, my mom grew up, she says she was the only, the only girl in her school that couldn't wear pants to school because she was Nazarene. She wore a skirt to school every day. Uh, my, mom, my mom talks about the, her, she had a grandmother who was very opposed to nicknames. So my mom's name is La Rose. There's all kinds of nicknaming you can do with that, right? You, she could be Rosie or Rose or Rosie or Rose, you know, all kinds of options. <laughs> but, but my mom had this grandmother who was very, very opposed to nicknames. She is La Rose, thank you very much. In my mom's mind when she was growing up, she was a part of the Church of the Nazarene, Grandma's very opposed to this thing about using nicknames. My mom just assumed that it was a rule in the Church of the Nazarene that you didn't use nicknames. And that just made sense to her because we were, we were rule followers, you know? We aren't, we aren't quite there in the Church of the Nazarene these days, I hope. I mean, I don't know what, what weird things my girls are going to think is a rule in the Church of the Nazarene because I'm opposed to them, but... I hope that we aren't known as the rule-following church quite as much. Uh, but in this letter, as Paul, he's, he's not talking so much about righteousness. He's talking about a godly life. And I, a, a godly life, it's, it's so much more about character than it is about the specific rules we follow. Um, and in this passage that we're, we're looking at today, Paul doesn't talk about the law at all. He, he never mentions it. But when, he, when he's kind of doing his takedown of the, the false teachers in, the, in this passage, he says that they have this unhealthy infatuation with arguing over the meanings of words. That sounds to me like law following. The thing we do when we want to follow rules really well is we want to define the rules first, Right? This, this quibbling, he says, over the meaning of words, it, it sounds a lot like, what's the best way to follow this rule? What's the best way to talk about this rule? What's the best definition that we can give for this rule? Because the law draws us into silly arguments like that. Laws, laws tend to make us people who want to define define the meaning of words. Whereas the gospel seems to quickly point us to the character of our hearts, and how our hearts are shaped, and if our hearts look like the heart of Christ or not. And so this passage, it doesn't list rules. It doesn't, there's no rules that a person should follow. There's no don'ts. There's no, there's no do's, really. Uh, teach these things, I suppose, is a do. 
But instead, Paul, Paul looks at the church in Ephesus and he looks for examples. Next week, we're going to be looking at the positive example of Timothy, the ways that Timothy is exemplifying godly life. This week, the passage we're looking at today, Paul finds a negative example. He finds these teachers, these false teachers, who are quibbling over, over silly things. And he gives this, this pretty harsh takedown in verses 4 and 5 of, of the false teachers. He says, they're arrogant, they lack understanding, they stir up arguments that end in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. They cause trouble, their minds are corrupt, and they've turned their back on the truth. And in all of this, Paul never mentions the content of their teaching, right? There's, there is no mention of what they are teaching that, that is doing this. It is simply a look at the character of, of the people. One commentator I, I read about this passage this week said, Paul doesn't, doesn't deal with their false teaching because they're so infatuated with arguing over the meaning of words that there's not actually any content to critique in their teaching. It's just silly arguments. Why, why wade into the silly arguments? Paul does talk in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 about the endless myths that they spin. And he talks in 1 Timothy chapter 4 about how they're opposed to certain foods and, and how they're opposed to marriage. But here in chapter 6, Paul centers on the character of the teachers rather than on their teaching. It's a good reminder for us. It's a good reminder for us that you can never separate a message from the messenger. That when, when we want to share the love of Christ, if we don't share it in a way that is loving, it's not going to be received as good news. Paul, Paul doesn't give a point-by-point -point takedown of their teaching because their behavior, their character, it's critique enough. Look at how they're living. How could they be, be teaching the truth? They're stirring up arguments. They're trying to make people mad at each other. That's not, that's not pointing people toward Christ. And so Paul, in, in chapter 3, he had listed the requirements for the elders. And as we consider that set of requirements, Paul talks about how leaders are, uh, show fidelity and self-control and wisdom. They have a good reputation if, if we keep in mind that broader context, we can't help but notice the, the contrast uh, between what a teacher and an elder should be and, and what the false teachers are doing. And the contrast doesn't end with just leadership, though. As Paul talks about relationships throughout the church in, in chapter 5, Paul talks about honoring relationships. The, the false teachers stirring up controversy, that's not honoring relationship. That's not, that's not setting the church up for for good, good honoring, caring lives together. And so Paul lays out this whole, this very harsh assessment of the character of the, the false teachers. And then at the end of, of verse 5, there's just this like super surprising turn to me. It's like he's going one way, talking about the character of the, of the leaders, and then he like takes a complete left turn, and he, he says... Uh, he starts talking about money. Um, and and he, he, he turns to the idea that they show godliness as a way to get wealthy. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he talks about how they wanted to be known as teachers of the Old Testament law. And, and in that 
assessment, you just hear like, maybe they want to be known, right? Being known, that's, you know, they want to be, they want to become popular. And then in, in chapter five, Paul, Paul uh, tells the church that elders should be respected and well-paid. But here, when he's saying they, they have a show of godliness to, uh, as a way to become wealthy, you know, I read that elders should be respected and well-paid. I didn't have an understanding that that meant it would make them rich. That, that's not really how I understood uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. But Paul seems to think there's, there's a, a way in which these false teachers think, if people will just follow me, people will listen to my message, I'm going to get rich. And, and so people who, who studied Paul's letters say that the false teaching in Ephesus it probably had something to do with wealth probably had something to do, do with, with getting rich. And historically, there, there has always been an element in the church that has wanted to say, Jesus will make you rich, right? There's always, there's always been people who, who say, you know, God wants good Christians to be, to be wealthy. Today, we hear preachers that say things like, uh, if you just give a small amount to this ministry, just see, just in faith, give a small amount to this ministry and see if God doesn't bless you with even more. Uh, I heard a testimony. I was live and in person. I was in the room when I heard this testimony uh, of, of a man who felt called by God to give his Audi to his pastor. And in, in response to God's faithfulness, Brooke has been in the room too, uh, in response to God's faithfulness, uh, in response to his faithfulness to God, uh, God gave him a Porsche. If anyone's interested in experimenting, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That was bad. Uh, <laughs> a few weeks ago, we were looking at this idea. I am not advocating that, by the way. Please, please, please. A few weeks ago, I talked about the beginning of, of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul talks about how the Spirit has clearly revealed that the church is going to go through difficult days. The Spirit has clearly spoken to the church that, that this godly life that we're living is, is not always the most comfortable life to live. And, and in fact, any gospel... That, that says the closer you get to Jesus, the more Instagram perfection you will experience in life, uh, that's, that's a false gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus. Jesus doesn't promise Porsches in exchange for Audis. The gospel of Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It says that lo in losing our lives, we find them. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, but that we should expect in this life the circumstances of this world to try their best to seem like they're separating us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, says in spite of this teaching that might be coming from, from the false teachers, there is great wealth in godliness. There's great wealth in godliness and being content with what we have. 
Wealth isn't, isn't found in exchanging a small gift to this ministry for the greater blessing that the Lord is going to give you. The, the blessing that God wants to give us is contentment with what we have, is peace in our hearts, even though we maybe don't have the latest and greatest gadget. I think Paul would go so far as to say that contentment is a sign of this godly, godly life. When we think about Jesus, we, we think about somebody who, who died with nothing. But he's this perfect model of contentment. Content in, in showing self-sacrificial love. Jesus tells his followers, don't store up for yourselves treasures in, heaven, uh, in earth uh, where moth and rust will destroy. Store up treasures in heaven. It, I, I couldn't help but remembering when I was... I think I was in high school, there was a bumper sticker that was like pretty popular for a little while that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> Paul says, you, you are born penniless and you take nothing with you when you die. Paul sounds a lot more like the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Like in Ecclesiastes, we read from this preacher who has experienced it all. He's been blessed by everything. He, he has experienced, you know, women and money and power and prestige, and people, people trying to, to heap honors upon him, he says, it's all been nothing. It's all been nothing. It's, it's all been meaningless. And so Paul, Paul points us to, uh, to this clear message that if, if we have enough food and clothing, let's be content. Let's be content. And he talks about the trap that our desires for wealth create for us. Verse 10 is, is a pretty, pretty harsh correction against, against the desire for comfort and contentment that, that we have in the form of wealth. He says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Our, our culture has programmed us to believe that, that blessing, that God's blessing, is found in the form of, of wealth, money, of riches. And we, we can mask that. Like our culture, we mask it sometimes by saying, oh, it's about the experiences, you know. It's about the experiences, the experiences that are only afforded to the wealthy, um, by the way, or uh, by just refusing to be to be content, like we have this drive, right? Our culture teaches us to be hungry, to drive, to, to need more, because more, more is obviously going to be more blessing. More is going to be better somehow. Or by, our, our culture helps us fixate on what we don't have yet, right? On the, on the next purchase, on, on the next thing. Uh, and believing that those next things are going to bring about contentment. And Paul, Paul kind of starts to, to get under our skin just a little bit about our wealth. Um, but I, I think his purpose here is, is that we wouldn't get to the end of life and realize that we have spent, spent our days in this foolish pursuit of wealth instead of trying to find contentment in the Lord. The Lord offers soul-level satisfaction of Psalm 23, he restores my soul. Um, 
It's nothing that can be purchased. When it comes down to it, though, I think wealth is just like the most accessible of all of the physical things that we try to, to find contentment in. It's, just the, it's the easiest example. Uh, but there's so many traps and detours in, <laughs> in this world that, that the end of, of all of them take us to sorrows, as, as Paul says. You know, we, we try to find contentment in, in all sorts of things, you know, like really cool clothes, but they end up going out of style. We, we think, you know, like a, a new game that we can play, like will make us more, we get bored of games, though. Uh, we, we think it's, it's travel, and then we end up frustrated that it's not like the pictures. Um, it, it doesn't matter how great the meal is, we're going to get hungry again, right? Uh, even, even if your team wins the World Series, they're probably not going to win it year after year after year. And even, even in relationships, when we, when we think that someone else is going to bring completeness to our lives, we discover that in the long-term, relationships are work hard. And I'm not saying don't press into relationship. I'm not saying don't eat a good meal. God created food for our enjoyment. But it's when we think that we are going to be complete because we, we have ex- had that experience. When we think that person is going to bring completeness to our lives. When we think that new purchase is going to, to make everything else come together in our world. Paul says that that's a road that has led people to many sorrows. The only way to avoid disappointment in this life is to agree with the, with the Apostle Paul. In Philippians, he said, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. For me to live means that Jesus is, is going to get to do with me as he pleases. And Jesus is going to call, call the shots for me. And to die is gain. That, that even, even in this life, as great as it could be following the will of Jesus, to die would, would, be, would be great. And so, uh, in, in his life, Jesus offered us grace and relationship. He offered, he offered to, to let us press into him, and, and he offered us the ability to look to him for contentment. The, he offered us the power we need to let go of all of the traps that we might, might think are going to go, make us content and to, to focus in on, on him for the contentment we need. I, I think it would be a really powerful thing if, if a community of believers decided, you know, uh, I'm only going to look to Jesus for, for my contentment. I, I realize that there are, there are things that I'm grasping for that aren't Jesus. That I'm fallen in, into this trap of, of thinking that those things are, are really what matters. Those things are really going to make me happy. Those things are, are going to make all of the other areas of life come together for me. I think there'd be power in a, in a church that would say, 
we're, gonna, we're going to walk away from those things. We're, we are going to, to say we find our contentment in Jesus, in, in letting him shape our character to make us godly people, people who, who love God and, and love others. And so today we're going to end our service with, with communion. Communion is such a great reminder of the backward nature of God's blessing. It's, it's a great reminder because it's just this tiny little wafer and little thimble full of juice, right? And this tiny little meal, we receive all of the grace of the God who created all that is. It, our world would tempt us to believe that in order to be blessed by a meal, it needs to be one of those meals where you like, you have to loosen your belt afterward and you like can barely walk away from the table. But that's, that is a, a blessing meal in, in our culture. Jesus shows us how backward <laughs> this world is that as his church has, has understood this meal, we've brought it down to these simple things. A little wafer of bread, a little cup of juice. In, in these things, we find all of the grace of the God who offered his only son as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is present in this meal to offer us all of the grace that we can experience from God. So let me, let me remind you what this meal is. This, is. this is a meal instituted by Jesus, our Savior. It proclaims his life his suffering, his sacrificial death and resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth his death until his return. This is a means of grace. Jesus is present in this by, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we receive with reverent and submissive hearts, we receive it in gratitude for the work of Christ. In our church, we invite everybody who, who wants to follow Jesus to take, everyone who is truly repentant, forsaking their sins, believing in Christ for salvation. You're invited. You're invited to participate in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We come to the table to be renewed, renewed in life, renewed in salvation, to be made one as a body by the power of the Spirit. And so, for, for years, the church has confessed our faith with this simple three, three phrase, phrases, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Would you confess that with me? Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Holy God, we gather at this table in the name of your Son, Jesus, who by the Spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, and ate with sinners. He established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, God, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Christ Jesus, we pray that you would pour out your spirit now on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world his body, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, Lord, make us one with Christ, one with each other, one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes again in final victory. Now I invite you to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. The words are on the screen if you'd like to follow along. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're going to receive the elements now. Uh, we have some folks that are going to come and, and pass out the elements as the choir sings. Go ahead and come if you're part of those teams. The choir will sing for us. Hold on to the elements. Listen to the words of the song. Pray and reflect. I'll come back and, and we will receive together.
invite you to receive the body of Christ given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. The blood of Christ poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Will you stand and let me pray for you? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to participate in this holy mystery. Thank you, God, for your presence that is mysteriously and uniquely present with us, showering grace upon us as we take these elements. God, we are, we are unworthy to receive. We get so confused often about what it means to be blessed by you. We think that more is more. Jesus taught us, though, that the contentment is found only in him, only in pressing deeper into relationship with you, God. And so, Lord, we pray that, that you would move in our hearts. Would you change our desires? Would you help us, God, to want only you? to desire to, to love you and to love others well. May we, may we avoid the traps of this world that lead to many sorrows. May we come to the end of our days knowing that we invested wisely the time we had and the relationships that, that allowed us to, to express your goodness and experience your goodness and that we, we sought contentment only in you. Go with us into this week, we pray, Lord. We're going we're gonna to find all kinds of traps. We're going to find all kinds of things that tempt us away from, from finding contentment only in you. And so, Lord, we need your help. Guide us by the power of your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go, go in the one who can make you content. God bless you. Thank you for joining us on the First NAS podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.